Welcome to the Bioengineering Podcast. This podcast is currently intended to promote an increased transparency between current, future, and prospective bioengineering students and faculty. This podcast is not directly affiliated with the UC San Diego Department of Bioengineering. The following is a conversation with UC San Diego Professor of Pediatrics, Computer Science, and Bioengineering, Dr. Robert Knight. So today we have uh, Dr. Rob Knight here. Uh, I'm really excited to speak with uh, Dr. Knight today. Uh, Dr. Knight is the founding director of the Center for Microbiome Innovation and a professor of pediatrics, computer science, and bioengineering, I believe, at UC San Diego. Uh, he was a pr professor of chemistry and biochemistry at Colorado Boulder before this. Um, he is the Wolf Family Endowed Chair of Microbiome Research. He is the fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science uh, and of the American Academy of Microbiology. Uh, in 2019, was the NIH Director's Pioneer Award for the microbiome for micro for his microbiome research. Um, fast forwarding, maybe a little bit forward. Uh, obviously, uh, numerous awards, numerous publications. Um, exceedingly high H-index score, as we know, a co-founder of the uh, Earth Microbiome Project, the American Gut Project, and the company Biota. Um, Dr. Knight, uh, thank you for being here today. Thank you for taking the time. Um, yeah. Sure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, so could you just tell the audience maybe uh, your journey to where you are today and how, how you transpire to sort of, you know, come into interest with what you do and yeah, well, uh, like many scientists, it's been a, a roundabout journey. Um, as, a, uh, as, as a kid, I was very interested in, in science generally, like, uh, you know, plants, animals, fossils, rocks, all that kind of thing. Uh, then, uh, th then later, I got into chemistry and uh, went, uh, went, went, went to college at the University of Otago in New Zealand, uh, where I'm from, um, initially planning to major in chemical engineering. But then when I found out that that wasn't about making cool molecules, but about uh, you know, getting industrial processes to be one or two percent more efficient uh, for giant petrochemical companies, I got a little less interested in that and uh, went, into, uh, went into biochemistry. So uh, what, what I was really interested in was um, an ecological problem, which is in New Zealand, we have uh, something like 70 million possums and a huge number of other mammalian pest species that eat the native uh, plants, uh, birds, uh, invertebrates, all that kind of stuff. And so uh, what I was focused on was finding a way to get rid of those. And uh, that's what led me to, uh, to, to uh, do a PhD in ecology and evolutionary biology at Princeton University, where my initial plan was to work with Lee Silver, uh, a professor there who had been um, interested in, uh, in, in the genetic phenomena that I was planning to use for that. So um, unfortunately, that project didn't work out which is uh, regrettably the case for the vast majority of PhD projects. So don't give up if you're a student listening to this and your uh, initial project isn't going so well. Um, I, I wound up, uh, I wound up uh, changing labs and working with, uh, working with Laura Landweber, another professor there, on the uh, origin and evolution of the genetic code. So still, uh, still, still evolutionary questions, but in this case, uh, switching from something technologically focused to something more about finding out about the history of life on our planet. 
Um, so then, uh, so then from there, I went to uh, do postdoctoral research with uh, Mike Yaris, who was uh, who, who's a professor at the University of Colorado at Boulder, and uh, that was continuing this idea about uh, understanding life in an RNA world and looking at uh, looking at RNA molecules and how they can contain the genotype and the phenotype within one molecule. So they're a really good uh, they're a really good study system for evolution in the lab and possibly for evolution in this very uh, primordial stage of life, the, the RNA world stage of life. Um, now, one, one RNA molecule that there was a whole lot of in the, uh, in the databases I was using at the time was the uh, small subunit ribosomal RNA. So, uh, so I talked to Norm Pace, um, another uh, professor at Boulder uh, at the time. Uh, he's, he's since retired, uh, and uh, asked him, you know, why are you collecting all these ribosomal RNA sequences? Uh, don't, don't we know a lot about the ribosome already? And uh, he pointed out that the reason he was collecting them wasn't to find out more about the ribosome, but uh, to find uh, find out more about the big tree of life, because uh, the ribosomal RNA, uh, the similarities and differences in it make it a really good marker for what kinds of life are out there in the environment and uh, where you can look in, new, uh, in, in um, understudied environments for the most novelty, the most, uh, the, the most new kinds of life on the tree. And, uh, I realized that you could take it a step further, where instead of using one of these sequences to put a new organism on the tree, you could use all the sequences in a given environment to put the whole environment on the tree and compare it to other environments. And uh, that's, that's what led me into studying microbes, although the technique's not just for microbes. Uh, you can use it for anything you can build a tree off. But the, the amazing thing was the changes in sequencing technology at the time, let us uh, find out more and more about uh, sequences in a particular sample, therefore microbes in a particular sample at an ever-expanding rate. So, uh, so at the time it was just for fun, and we were looking at microbes and you know seawater and sediment and the air and that kind of stuff. But uh, it took on a whole new significance um, with uh, with with work with uh, with uh, Professor Jeff Gordon, who's a professor at Washington University in St. Louis where we started looking at the problem of obesity and looking at how microbes were involved in obesity, uh, the first trait that microbes, first complex trait that microbes were linked to in a mammal. And uh, so since then, we've just pushed that technology further and further, finding out the relationship between microbes and all sorts of, uh, all, all sorts of phenomena in the human body, uh, in, uh, in different animals, uh, in the environment, uh, even industrial applications, like uh, you, mentioned, you mentioned my company, Biota, where uh, what we did there was looked at how you could use microbes in the oil to guide oil field decisions, uh, primarily in unconventional shale. So you could figure out how to reduce fracking by understanding uh, which um, which uh, which wells were producing out of the same uh, out, out of the same uh, formation by looking at the microbes in the oil directly. So uh, all kinds of applications that you wouldn't expect. And uh, what's really exciting is that we're just finding out more and more ways, not just that microbes are involved. In the, in the scientific aspects of these systems, but how we can use them to make life better for ourselves and for our planet. Uh, well, an obvious wonderful description of, of what you are doing and, and, and what led you to uh, what you're doing today. Um, speaking of sampling, you know, uh, one of your students, I had, to, I had the pleasure of listening to one of your students talk about uh, sampling uh, microbes off of the International Space Station, uh, and that was quite wonderful to learn about. Uh, and uh, these trees you speak of, these trees that sort of uh, can uh, develop the foundation, it seemed like originally from biochemistry or the marriage of biochemistry and uh, evolutionary biology. Uh, since, do you feel like you have, I don't know, if planting tr 
trees or developing new trees have uh, you know have you done such do you believe you've done such things right or developing trees do you yeah absolutely well uh, most recently um, uh, mo most most recently uh, one of uh, one of the senior scientists in my lab uh, Daniel McDonald uh, led a paper that uh, redefines uh, re redefines the tree of life for microbes uh, combining uh, combining a tree based on whole genomes with the uh, with with the ribosomal RNAs that we use as markers, and uh, what's incredible about that is that for the first time we can use these different techniques and understand uh, what, um, what 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 uh, characteristics of a person make a big versus a large difference in uh, in different populations. And prior to that, people who use different methods saw different things. We're finally starting to uh, we're, we're finally starting to uh, be able to use better trees to to tie those different views into one unified view of how microbes work and how they modify our bodies. Understand. And what uh, is your uh, I guess uh, uh, contributions currently to uh, the Department of Pediatrics? Uh, well, a lot of interesting questions for um, uh, for for microbes come up in children. And uh, we found we found some work back in 2011, 2012, that the vast majority of uh, microbiome development happens over the three of the first three years of life. So uh, the, um, the the amount that you change in your gut microbiome from when you're born to the time you're three is much greater than it's going to change for the rest of your life, and larger than the difference between different species, like the difference between a bear and a giraffe. That's how much you change. Uh, so totally different, uh, totally different microbiome. And there's this tradition called DOHAD, uh, the Developmental Origins of Health and Disease, where the idea is that a lot of the seeds of chronic disease later on are planted very early in childhood. So my, my department chair, uh, Dr. Gabby Haddad, uh, primarily studies, ca studies cardiovascular disease. And for his whole career, he's had to defend himself against other pediatricians, asking, you know, so you're a pediatrician, why do you study cardiovascular disease? Why do you study it in mice and in fruit flies? Uh, you know, what does that have to do with children? Right. And his response to that is the same as my response to uh, why a lot of the stuff that we do is relevant to pediatrics, which is that the seeds of those conditions that are only going to affect you as an adult, maybe they're happening in the first three years of life, uh, maybe you can change them during those first three years of life or, uh, or maybe later in childhood. Or maybe if you can assess your risk for those things that are set very early in life, you have the capacity to change them later on. And uh, this is part of why it's really important to study the microbiome, because if you think about the billions and billions of dollars that have, be, that have been spent um, studying the human genome, right. your, your human genome is fixed when you're conceived, right? It's not going to change after that. Whereas your microbiome, which is where the vast majority of your genes are, that continues to change through your whole life, and you have control over the process of change. So if you find that you've got a, a human gene that's linked to disease, you're probably not going to uh, bring out your, your CRISPR-Cas9 uh, your, your CRISPR toolkit and uh, edit it out of every cell in your body. Whereas if you find that you have a microbe that's linked to disease, you have a lot of strategies that you can deploy much faster in terms of, uh, in, in terms of either getting rid of that microbe, getting rid of the specific gene that causes, uh, that, that causes the disease later on, or encouraging its competitors to outcompete it ecologically. So there's a lot of stuff that's much more actionable that you can do sooner than that long, long pathway between, between finding a human gene and maybe 40 years later you have an approved small molecular antibody that's on the market that targets it. So it seems to me that uh, from the age, uh, ages of zero to three, the information regarding the gut microbiome is plentiful. Yes. But 
afterwards for the rest of your for the rest of your life, um, what information I guess do you still can you still extract that's still useful or that's still maybe unknown or undiscovered? Yeah, well, well, that's that's a great question. So most of the change happens in the first three years of life, but it does continue to change. And uh, what, what you care about from a technological perspective is usually not how much changes there, uh, but does the, does the variation that you see correlate with anything that you want to read out or modify? So, um, so even, uh, e even, even, for, uh, even for events much later in life, for example, uh, like we can read out your age depending on what biospecimen, uh, what biospecimen we're looking at to uh, about, uh, about three years to about 10 years based on your microbiome sample. And so, you know, on the one hand, that's pretty cool. On the other hand, you could just look at your driver's license and get a much more precise estimate of age, right? right. But what you can't get from that is you can't get um, uh, the residuals. So you don't know, is my personal microbiome age old or young relative to other people? And uh, then does that tie into different parameters of health? So one population we're working with is the FINRIS 2002 cohort. And uh, what's amazing about that is it's about 8,000 people who, uh, produced, uh, who, who produced a whole lot of biospecimens for science back in 2002, including a fecal sample. And because it's Finland, the complete medical records are also available. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I mean, obviously with the privacy protections and so on, and uh, a lot of uh, ethical restrictions on use. But uh, the upshot is that we can, we can take that sample from 2002, which we sequenced a few years ago, and we can ask uh, not just were they healthy in 2002, but are they still healthy now? And uh, for the people who are not so healthy or even dead, um, what are all the things that happened to them and how much of that could we predict from the 2002 sample? And so what's really important about this is that we start to get this, uh, th this view of being healthy over time instead of a snapshot, because you want to know not am I healthy right now, but rather am I gonna stay healthy five, 10, 20, 50 years in the future? And uh, if I'm not going to stay healthy, is there anything that I can do to move myself from the unhealthy to the healthy category? So, uh, so that, that's just sort of a baseline. Um, in the context of things like cancer immunotherapy, uh, that boundary between, between uh, are you going to recover or are you going to not recover is often a lot, uh, a lot sooner in the future. And uh, for, example, um, uh, for example, Dr. Uh, Jennifer Wago at MD Anderson has done some amazing work showing that not only can you tell whether someone's going to respond to cancer immunotherapy or not based on their microbiome, but you can actually change their microbiome with diet or antibiotics uh, or possibly even probiotics, although those can be harmful as well as beneficial. Um, uh, you can actually change their microbiome to move them from a category where the drug will do nothing for them and they're going to die to a category where they survive. And uh, that, that's just amazing and it shows the potential for having these impacts, not just in the long term for general health, but in the short term in response to very specific medications. Yeah, that is amazing. So would you consider this the um, next uh, genesis, or I guess not the genesis, but the next uh, step uh, yeah, absolutely. So companion diagnostics are uh, starting to explode as a huge area. So the idea is you have a drug, it works for some people but not others, you have no idea why. Uh, if you could come up with a better diagnostic, um, then you could figure out who the drug's going to work for up front. And uh, in the pharmacogenomics field, this has been tried with modest success uh, using the human genome as a marker. But uh, your microbiome both has a lot more genes in it, a lot more catalytic functions that your, that your uh, puny human genome doesn't encode, uh, especially with respect to uh, breaking down or reactivating different, uh, different compounds uh, and compound classes. 
And then on top of that, it's a lot more modifiable, so you can do something to change it if you turn out not to be a responder. And, uh, and so that's really exciting, especially because you don't, get, uh, you don't have to get approval for a new compound through the FDA, which is a multi-decade, multi-billion dollar process. So I think we're going to see a lot of that sort of thing uh, very soon. In the longer term, we're finding out a lot about microbiome mechanisms, so we're understanding how the microbiomes interact with our immune system, uh, how they interact with our epithelial layers, uh, how they, um, how, how they uh, produce small molecules that go through our bodies, trigger all sorts of receptors, change all kinds of different processes. That's especially important for the gut-brain axis, for example. Uh, and so we're finding out about all these biological mechanisms, but the pathway from discovering a biological mechanism to having a new approved compound uh, that targets it, that you can prove therapeutic efficacy for, and safety for that's on the market, uh, that's just a multi-decade process. So we're not, uh, we wouldn't expect to see any of that yet, given how young the field is. You mentioned right there uh, the gut-brain axis. Can you elaborate on that? Sure. So, um, so, so the first, so, so I mentioned that in 2005, uh, in work with the Gordon Lab, um, uh, we were able to contribute to this work showing that microbes were linked to obesity. And uh, the, other, the other trait that was studied really early on was inflammatory bowel disease. And so, uh, so the idea that maybe the microbes in your gut are linked to inflammatory bowel disease, not very surprising, um, although the details turn out to be quite hard to work out, especially in terms of coming up with new therapies. Uh, it was more surprising that microbes were linked to obesity, although again, it made sense in terms of, uh, in terms of energy harvest. Uh, th there was an amazing paper that came out around 2010 by uh, Gil Sharon and his uh, collaborators in Israel. And what it showed was that uh, microbes could alter behavior, and, uh, and, uh, and it, was in, it was in fruit flies. And basically they showed that depending on which microbes uh, those fruit flies had, it determined which other flies they wanted to have sex with, and uh, determined reproductive success, basically. And that was the first evidence, although not in a, ma not in a mammal, uh, but in an insect, that you could modify behavior uh, via, uh, via, via, uh, via the normal microbiome that you had. And uh, in that case, it had an evolutionary consequence where it was enforcing reproductive isolation, which is a, a big deal in, uh, in, in speciation. So, um, so around that time, a lot of people thought, well, uh, okay, so maybe, maybe this is a trick they can do in flies, uh, but surely you wouldn't expect the microbiome to have anything to do with behavior in humans. But uh, what's happened since then is there have been a whole lot of studies, including, uh, including some that we've contributed to with various collaborators, especially Sarkis Masmanian, um, a, a professor at Caltech, who we collaborate with frequently. Uh, there's been um, th there's been a whole lot uh, there's been a whole lot of work showing that um, uh, microbes are not just associated, but in animal models causally implicated in analogues of a whole lot of diseases, including autism, uh, multiple sclerosis, uh, Parkinson's disease, and autism. Uh, the four that we've studied with Sarkis, but other other people have looked at all kinds of other things including uh, depression, schizophrenia, ALS, and so on. And what's amazing about this is not only can you, uh, can you take human cases and controls and show that they have differences in their microbiome depending on what condition they have, uh, that's interesting, but you can't prove causality that way. You can only prove association. 
So the way you prove causality is that you take some mice that you've grown with no microbes of their own, so you grow them up in this bubble where they have absolutely no bacteria, and then you colonize them with microbes that you think are going to make a difference. So either like a stool sample from someone who's healthy or someone who has a particular uh, condition, whether it's, uh, whether it's something like obesity or something like, um, or, or something like multiple sclerosis or even depression has been done by uh, other groups in research that, um, that, that we weren't involved with. Uh, and so then you can transplant that into a mouse, see if the mouse changes its behavior uh, or, uh, or phenotype, and then start to dissect it and ask, is there a particular microbe or a small group of microbes that you could transfer together that confers that behavior by itself? And once you, uh, once you do that, then you can start targeting particular pathways in the microbes and start to understand, uh, you know, are they interacting with uh, elements of drugs? Are they uh, interacting with elements of diet, which has a huge impact on mood? Although, uh, if you have depression, you should definitely go to a psychiatrist and um, get something that's evidence-based and that works rather than trying to do it yourself by diet, uh, which is very difficult. You know, even though there are studies that show that it has a large impact, it's very difficult to change it on your own versus, um, uh, versus uh, what, what you can do if you're working with a psychiatrist. So, um, so, uh, so being, able to, being able to shorten that pathway, especially because for most psychiatric conditions, um, for example, for major depressive disorder, uh, there's a series of different drugs. Uh, probably uh, some combination of drugs and therapy will work for most people, but what combination, uh, what combination it is is very different for different people. And so there's this long, slow process of months or years where you're switching through different ineffective therapies before you find one that's effective. And if you could figure it out up front, that would be a huge deal. So one of the projects we're just starting at the moment is uh, one with Dr. Aaron Besterman, who's uh, a physician at Rady Children's Hospital, as well as being a professor uh, here at UCSD. And uh, what we're looking at is we're looking at uh, adolescents who are being treated for major depressive disorder. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to bypass that long, slow process of finding the right medication by asking, can you stratify people upfront from their microbiome or from their initial microbiome response to SSRIs, uh, so to one of the most common classes of antidepressants, to find out uh, if we can bypass that process of trying things out empirically, just seeing if they work for you or not, versus being able to take a much more targeted approach. Uh, thank you for your wonderful insights and delivery here on, on sort of uh, what you're doing and what you have done, uh, and, and maybe what the future beholds for the uh, sort of the gut microbiome and. and Fantastic! It seems like field of research. I, I feel as if we may need to have another conversation at a later date to maybe dig a little deeper uh, as we're on a little bit of a time uh, constraint. So I think at this point I'd like to perhaps shift it a little bit and, op and open up the conversation a little more. Something that I thought of actually as you were speaking um, was, if I'm not mistaken, your contributions to the, and maybe even just the genesis entirely of the COVID wastewater sort of management going on at UCSD. Can you just briefly touch up upon what, what happened there in Oh, sure, absolutely. So, um, so in, uh, in in March of 2020, uh, there was an email that came across the um, the RNA Society mailing list that Genio, uh, another professor here at UCSD, and, uh, and and I were both on, that was uh, asking, uh, uh, you know, could people send uh, particular liquid handling robots and reagents to uh, to the public health lab in Colorado to help them with COVID testing because they were getting completely overwhelmed. And uh, we thought, well, you know, we'd be willing to do that, but uh, maybe we should check on the COVID testing infrastructure right here in our area. 
because we'd feel kind of bad if we sent all our stuff to Colorado and uh, it turned out that it was needed right here. So, uh, so we checked with the clinical pathology lab um, who, uh, who, who absolutely did not want any help, but we were a bit concerned uh, given that many other places had failed to scale their, their operations. And we teamed up with uh, Christian Anderson uh, at, at Scripps Research and Lago Farnese at uh, Ready Children's Hospital to start this thing called the Search Alliance. Uh, which was basically, uh, which was basically um, a group dedicated to monitoring, uh, monitoring and tracking SARS-CoV-2 in our area. And uh, within two weeks, we had a QPCR assay qualified, uh, and uh, then we were able to work rapidly with the Institutional Review Board and the Institutional Biosafety Committee here uh, to be able to set that up as a research basis. So already by April, we were running drive-through testing on a research basis uh, using a drive-through site we set up at National University to uh, basically provide uh, testing to anyone who wanted it and also to be able to take those swabs and use them for research, like to sequence the viral genomes and uh, understand, uh, understand how the virus was spreading. So, uh, so we ran that for a few months, um, but, uh, but there were two problems. Uh, first off, we ran out of money because all of this was uh, not explicitly supported by any external funding. Uh, it, was, it was all bootstrapped. And second, even though the Institutional Review Board had approved it as a research project, uh, UCSD Legal was very uncomfortable with it and were worried about what would, what would the consequences be if people participated in the research, didn't really understand it, thought they were getting a clinical test, they made life-altering decisions uh, that, that might affect their jobs, might affect their families and so on, on the basis of uh, what they perceived as uh, a positive or negative clinical test rather than a research result. So, um, so we were told that we had to close down until we could uh, re reopen as a clinical testing facility. And so uh, that summer, uh, we, we figured, well, we have the assay running. Uh, we should try it out on wastewater, where there were some successful reports elsewhere about doing that at the level of whole cities. And uh, I was curious about at the level of our hospitals, would we be able to track the caseload in the hospital based on the wastewater coming out of the hospital? So I thought maybe we'd be able to tell the difference between say 10, 100, 1,000 um, uh, 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 cases in the hospital, that, that sort of level. And uh, Smriti Kathakian, uh, an extraordinarily talented um, uh, uh, postdoc who joined my lab uh, for a completely different purpose, really sprang into action to, to set this up. So we had two samples at the hospital and one on campus as our negative control. So then um, in, uh, in, in September, the Thursday before Labor Day of 2020, uh, the one on campus turned from, um, uh, turned from uh, negative, which had been every day for months, to positive. And uh, I, I told Smithy, well, you better be really sure about that. Could you run it in triplicate? And she said, well, I already had run it in triplicate before I talked to you. And I said, okay, well, that's good, but I'm, I'm still paranoid about this. Could you go back to the original sample and extract it in triplicate, and then run each of those in triplicate? So she went back and did that, and that took a couple of hours. But uh, at that point, we were really, really sure that the campus sampler intended, uh, turned out positive. So, um, so then, then I ran that up the chain through the Return to Learn program, which was uh, sponsoring this as a pilot. And uh, later that same day, we were on a call with the Chancellor, uh, pretty much the entire upper administration, and um, all of the Return to Learn stakeholders. And uh, there was a bit of a, a bit of a dilemma because the question was, um, you know, do we, we don't know what this result means in terms of caseload or infectiousness or anything like that. So uh, do we not report it, but then we could be accused of covering it up? Or do we report it, but then we have to admit that we don't know what it means in terms of any of those things? So, um, so to, to his credit, the Chancellor made the decision to, to report it. 
and then uh, unfortunately that sampler was set up to a catchment area of 600 people in in, in residential buildings so um, so 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 calm the main clinical lab had to set up uh, desks and uh, clinical staff over all of Labor Day weekend to test all 600 people, which they weren't very happy about. So that led to the program that we have now where the samplers, uh, each one has a much more restricted catchment area so that when it's positive, it's not covering nearly as many people. And additionally, we have that campus map and the notification systems where you can um, where you can see every day does the building that I'm, I'm going to have a high COVID load or not. And uh, it's also matched up to the clinical testing through the vending machines, which as far as I know are unique here. We had to, we had to do a lot of work with campus IT, health IT uh, facilities, ba basically everyone on campus, uh, logistics especially, to get, to get that set up and working and integrated with the wastewater. And what we're doing right at the moment is we're uh, hoping to expand that to a much, more, a much broader respiratory panel. So the idea is that you could see immediately what, what is going on in my building and why are people sniffling? Is it COVID? Is it flu A? Is it flu B? Is it RSV? Is it rhinovirus or some other thing I don't care about? And then you'll be able to take yourself with an instant swab and find out if you personally have the thing that is going around in your building or if you have something different that you might not want to contribute to the pool. And uh, that, that's where we're headed. Uh, so the, the idea is that we could dramatically expand that kind of self-administered uh, testing to not only, uh, not, not only uh, rule in the most nasty things, but also if you could rule in a particular relatively harmless pathogen, we think that would be a big deal for helping people guide their decisions about their health. And, um, and so that, that's what we're hoping to bridge it to. And so, so at this point, Excite, which is the lab we set up to do the clinical COVID testing, um, so Louise Laurent, uh, really, uh, um, so, so she's, she's the vice chair for uh, research in OBGYN and, um, and, and a physician and really bore the, br uh, really bore the brunt of having to uh, set, uh, set this thing up from a clinical perspective and sign off personally on all of the tests for months with her medical license at stake. Um, recently, uh, re recently, she got approval to make this a full clear lab. So now, instead of just being able to do COVID, we can set up all kinds of other testing. And uh, we're, we're really intrigued by the possibility of taking all the kinds of things that we can do for research in the microbiome and turn them into clinical tests that could uh, go into your medical record, just like your COVID tests do um, on, on campus, and could really, uh, you know, could really help guide medical, uh, medical decisions. Uh, not just being confined to a research lab or a research project. Thank you so much, uh, and we appreciate your your, your uh, contributions uh, to 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 COVID and to the pandemic. And so, I think uh, the, the last thing I will I will leave the audience with is, you know, do you have I guess any parting words, any any imparting words of wisdom, uh, any, any insights into you know. Well, I don't know about uh, words of wisdom, but especially for um, especially for your uh, for, for your Beg's audience. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, I think COVID really showed that uh, a whole lot of people, including a lot of bioengineering grad students um, like uh, Rodolfo Salido, who you mentioned earlier in the context of the ISS, uh, he also did a giant amount towards our COVID program, including a lot of stuff that went into implementation like uh, Sentinel cards in schools and uh, that kind of thing, but also a lot of stuff that we developed but wasn't implemented, like uh, specialized spit funnels to get uh, saliva samples from thousands of people into this high capacity uh, lab automation, uh, automation infrastructure and so on. Um, I, I, think, uh, I, I think things like the pandemic really show how you can uh, come in from, uh, from a related field and apply the skills that you have to something that can really make a difference during a crisis. 
and uh, I hope we won't face another thing like COVID-19 in our lifetimes. But uh, given the pervasive influence of, of humans in coming uh, coming into contact, uh, not just with every corner of the world uh, of, of the world as it, as it exists today, but also with uh, uh, ancient viruses out of the permafrost and so on, there's certainly a lot of concern about another pandemic, and also a lot of uh, other crises like um, like especially in the environment uh, that you can think about contributing to now. So it's not necessarily that you have to uh, that you have to spend all your time training for what are you going to do if something like that happens, but just being prepared to uh, take the skills that you have and reapply them where it really matters. Uh, that there's going to be so much opportunity for that uh, coming up that I think you really um, that that that, uh, that that I think it's inspiring to see how many people uh, did do that uh, during COVID and continue to be interested in how they can apply their skills to solving uh, the next wave of problems coming up. Great, thank you so much, uh, and, uh, folks. That I think that's all we have to, for today. Uh, Dr. Knight, once again, thank you so much, and, and, and yeah, appreciate it. Sure, thanks again.